Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Martin Indyk served twice as United States Ambassador to Israel and as Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs during the Clinton administration. He also served during the Obama administration as Washington's Special Middle East Envoy for renewed peace talks between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. But his latest book is about an earlier diplomat, former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger. Ambassador Indyk sat down with my guest host this week, AJC Chief Policy and Political Affairs Officer Jason Isaacson, to talk about Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy. Jason, the mic is yours. Thanks, Manya. Ambassador Martin Indyk, I've been so eager to discuss Master of the Game with you. It's a sweeping, revealing, provocative work of history, of politics, of statecraft, the way you report on the complexities, the subtleties, and really the urgency of U.S. efforts to bring order and create pathways for peace in the Middle East. And of course, focusing on the unique role of Dr. Henry Kissinger makes for the most compelling reading. I highly recommend Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Diplomacy. Let's begin. Ambassador Martin Indyk, thank you so much for joining us on People of the Pod. Thanks for having me. I've been going through your extremely impressive book on Henry Kissinger and the art of Middle East peacemaking, Master of the Game. Woven through your account of the years following the Yom Kippur War of 1973 are Kissinger's reflections on the decades of on-again, off-again peacemaking since, and your own reflections as a leading player in U.S. Middle East policy under Presidents Clinton and Obama. I want to drill down on a few of the observations that you offer in your book, and I'd like to begin near the end where you note in one passage, and I'll quote, the need for a peace process, the better to promote the regional order, and the need for a stable regional order, the better to promote peace. Now, looking back over the last couple of years, in which one could say the increasing stability in wider Arab-Israeli relations, culminating last year in the Abraham Accords normalization agreements, did nothing to revitalize an Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Is it your feeling that this wider peace is anomalous, that it can't be sustained without Israeli-Palestinian peace? To me, it actually does feel quite solid, even without progress on the Palestinian front. What do you think? Well, thanks, Jason. First of all, I want to explain a little bit about what Kissinger had in mind when he embarked after the 1973 Yom Kippur War on an effort not so much to make peace, although that's what it looked like, But his real purpose was to build a new American-led order that would be more stable than the one that ended up producing the 1973 Yom Kippur War with its devastating impact on the parties to the conflict, especially Israel. And he was very suspicious about peace as an end result. His own life experience led him to prefer order as something more real and something more critical to the lives of people. If you can avoid chaos and establish a stable equilibrium in the balance of power, especially in a volatile place like the Middle East, then you can create better conditions for making peace. But the art in his diplomacy 
was that he understood that in order to achieve a stable order, he needed a legitimizing mechanism, something that would give everybody a stake in that order. And for that, he said there needed to be a peace process. And that's why he introduced the effort to make peace. But his viewers, as I said, were skeptical about it. And he believed that it would take a long time for the Arabs to come to terms with Israel and a long time for Israel to build its strength and reduce its isolation to the point where it would be able to take the necessary risks for peace, such that a trade of territory for peace would, in the end, produce a result. But for him, it was a long process, and he was just embarking on the beginning of it. And he was looking for a process that could legitimize the order and at the same time exhaust the Arabs and give Israel time to strengthen itself. So this is a long way of getting to answering your question, which is, in many ways, the Abraham Accords is a vindication of Kissinger's long game. That is to say, if you look at some of the statements made by the Emiratis in particular, when they justified the full normalization with Israel, they said, we're tired of this conflict. And I think that that was the heart of it. They've had enough of it. They want to get on with their lives. And they see Israel as a critical player in that. But on the other hand, a failure to resolve a conflict as fundamental to Israel's existence as the Palestinian conflict will complicate any attempt to have a stable order without it. And therefore, if you follow Kissinger's principles, there needs to be a workable peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians, which is missing at the moment. And his view of how to do it is worth pondering now because his whole approach was gradual, incremental, step-by-step diplomacy was his formulation, his concept. And had we stuck to that back in the days of Oslo, everybody kind of trashes Oslo these days, but we forget that Oslo was a gradual incremental process. It had no defined end game. It was designed to have Israel withdraw in stages. That's exactly what Kissinger did with Egypt and took Egypt out of the conflict with Israel. But that was abandoned by Ewart Barak and Bill Clinton. At the end, yeah, I was part of that process. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought yourself into this because I really wanted to ask your own experience, whether you followed that Kissingerian gradualism that you describe in your book in your own role as special envoy. Uh, well, let's back up to the time with Clinton when I was part of his peace team and I was in Israel at the time of Camp David where we went to Camp David to try to resolve the conflict, something Kissinger would never have done because he didn't believe it could be done. He believed in a gradual, long game. But we were under the influence of Ehud Barak, who had his own calculations politically because he no longer had a majority in the Knesset, and he pressed Clinton to go for it. Clinton was in his last year in office, and he decided that he too would go for it, which was an example of what Kissinger warned about particularly for American statesmen, leaders, that they are drawn to this idea of immortality and universality. And it's much more attractive than his gradualism and maintenance of a balance of power. And so, you know, Clinton succumbed to the siren song of of a comprehensive deal, which Aaron Barak was insisting on. And we dragged Arafat to Camp David. He did not want to go. 
he wanted another step in the Oslo process. And when he got there, he basically was looking for a way to escape. And we can go and continue with the, the discussion but on what happened after that. But nevertheless, we chose to abandon the step-by-step process. And as a consequence, kind of leave a straight line to the outbreak of the Intifada, the destruction of trust, the destruction of any peace process. And it's been impossible since then, basically, like Humpty Dumpty, to put it back together again. And notwithstanding the efforts of four presidents to do so, and my own efforts with John Kerry and President Obama. Let me turn to the uh, the role of the United States in all of this in moving forward. And as your book reflects on the state of the United States after Vietnam, in the midst of the Watergate scandal, the resignation of President Nixon, I'm intrigued by parallels between current state of affairs and the mid-1970s you described. So the United States just pulled out of Afghanistan in a chaotic way. We have political division in the United States. A lot of questions. We just had meetings on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly in which question after question was raised to us, to the AJC delegations, about American political resolve. You say that Kissinger played a weak hand well in moving diplomacy forward, even against that backdrop. Do we have diplomats today who are skilled enough to use that same weak hand? By the way, is it a weak hand that we have now in in 2021? But, but if it is, do we have diplomats who are competent and skilled enough and clever enough to be able to move forward any kind of peacemaking in the Middle East? Well, I think the comparison is a very good one. I'm delighted that you picked up on it because, of course, you know, Kissinger was presiding over the end of the Vietnam War. The images of the last helicopter taking the Americans off, off the embassy roof in Saigon in 1975 is very similar to what we witnessed in Afghanistan, or even though it was worse in the case of Afghanistan. And you also point to the deep division at the time over Watergate and the forced resignation of Nixon. But what Kissinger was able to do with diplomacy was to pivot to the Middle East, just like Biden's wanting to do a reverse pivot away from the Middle East towards Asia. Kissinger was pivoting the opposite in the opposite direction. And just like Biden talks about relentless diplomacy, that's what Kissinger engaged in. I mean, his shuttle diplomacy was a perfect example of relentless diplomacy, where he made something like 26 trips back and forth to Damascus and Jerusalem and Cairo to get the Golan Heights disengagement agreement in 1974. The comparison is a very good one. The question of do we now have the skills that he had is a good one, and we don't know the answer yet. Certainly the first move after the pivot away from Afghanistan This alliance with the United States, Australia and the UK was not handled well at all. There was no need to shaft the French in the way that we did. And so there's, I think, a question mark about that. It's not, a, I think, a game that Kissinger would have played, although he didn't have much time for the French. But I think the great lesson of what Kissinger was able to do was that he understood that first there has to be an equilibrium in the balance of power. And then there has to be a mechanism for advancing America's interests. Now, his mechanism was getting Israel to agree to limited withdrawals in exchange for commitments not to go back to war on the part of the Egyptians and the Syrians. And that was short of peace, but it was a process that he managed very effectively. In the analogue to that is what 
Biden did ham-handedly with the UK-USA-Australia agreement was really trying to establish an equilibrium in the balance of power with the Chinese. So I give him high marks for the concept. It's quite Kissingerian, but the implementation was problematic. Let me turn to another issue in your book that was quite fascinating to see you write about Kissinger's Jewishness, whatever his level of observance during the years where you're writing. That as a factor in his Middle East peacemaking success, that when negotiating with Israelis and Arabs, his Israeli interlocutors, as you describe it, perceived him as being a member of the family in some sense. And his Arab interlocutors saw that perhaps he would have more influence in delivering Israeli concessions. Were those perceptions and assumptions accurate? And from your own experience, have the Jewish U.S. Middle East negotiators who followed Henry Kissinger found this to be the case as well? Yes, to both. I think that Kissinger was very unsure of himself when he started. He was very defensive. He'd never visited the Arab world before he went into government or in his first five years in government when he was national security advisor. He'd never visited the Arab world. His first visit came after the 1973 Yom Kippur War. He had never written about the Middle East. For all of his brilliant studies of the European 19th century order, he wrote this brilliant book called The World Restored, which was based on a study of Castlereagh and Metternich, establishing the post-Napoleonic order in Europe. But he'd never written about the Ottoman Empire. He'd visited Israel six times before he went into the White House as National Security Advisor, but he'd never visited any Arab country. So he himself was very wary about it. And this wariness was heightened by the fact that Nixon didn't want him to deal with the Middle East. And part of the reason he didn't want to deal, didn't want him to deal with it, and he was very explicit about it, put it in his biography too, was that he thought that Kissinger's Jewishness would expose him to dual loyalty. And he says many times, he's quoted talking to Haldeman, Haig and others, that you can't rely on Henry when it comes to Israel. He's always pushing Israel's cause. So Henry was very defensive about that. I believe that part of the reason that Henry's quoted is with some fairly egregious statements, and you, you know them well, about Jews is because he was playing in an anti-Semitic environment and trying to show that he was like, one of the boys. But the reality was that Nixon was right. Not that he was exposed to dual loyalty, but that he did care about Israel's survival and well-being. And he did believe that Israel could play a very important role in advancing American interests in the region. He saw no conflict between his commitment to the American national interest and his commitment to Israel's survival and well-being. And that is exactly the same thing that I think certainly applied to me as an American Jew with an Australian accent, but pursuing the American national interest, but believing that a strong, capable, democratic Israel was very much, is very much in the interest of the United States. And I'm quite sure that's true for Dennis Ross or Aaron Miller or Dan Kurtz or, or the others of us that were involved, even Jared Kushner, Jason Greenblatt. I think, had the same view, even though I don't agree with the way that they went about trying to make peace. I still think there was a consistency there. And Kissinger, you know, I think often gets a bad rap, both in Israel and in the American Jewish community. And there are reasons for that related to 
the way in particular that he pressured Israel in 1975 and pressured Israel at the end of the Yom Kippur War. But in retrospect, we see two things about that. First of all, that it produced the Israeli peace treaty. It laid the foundation for that, which is redounded to the immense benefit of Israel. Took Egypt out of the conflict in, for all intents and purposes, the state-to-state conflict between Israel and the Arab states led eventually to this normalization of the other Arabs. All of that starts with Kissinger. But it starts with him having to have knockdown, drag out fights, which I detail in the book, first between Prime Minister Golda Meir, then between Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin in his first time as Prime Minister, and Shimon Peres, who was Defence Minister, trying to make them understand why it was in Israel's interest to give up territory in a calculated way in order to justify the peace process, strengthen America's credibility in the region, and buy time. And this is the thing that I think is the art in Kissinger's diplomacy. He strongly believed that Israel needed time and that giving up pieces of territory to buy time was the best strategy for Israel's survival. And when we look back now, we see how right he was, that time, that by Israel giving up territory, it brought time to strengthen itself, to end its isolation, to build its relationships across the world, and to give Jewish genius an ability to grow, burgeon into the high-tech industries and so on that we see today in Israel, so that it would be in a better position then to take risks for peace. So I think it's time to call back Henry. <laughs> he's ready. He's only 98 and he's going strong and he's a phenomenon. And, and you know, I, I talked to him a lot about this. He remembers the details of this in a way that I could never do. Things that happened 40 years ago that are not every detail, but a hell of a lot of it. Remarkable, remarkable life. And you've captured it so brilliantly in your book. Martin Indyk, thank you so much for being our guest on AJC's People of the Pod. Look forward to the next time that we have a chance to uh, actually meet in person. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you very much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Jason, thank you for bringing us that conversation with Martin. You were in Morocco last week to meet with the newly installed government there yet another place on my travel wish list in addition to Israel. The closest I come to Morocco is watching the movie Casablanca. So I have, uh, <laughs> I have a lot of traveling to do. As we approach, though, this, this one-year anniversary of Israel's normalization agreement with the Moroccan kingdom in December, where does that agreement stand? I mean, the governing party is not the same now after that country's recent election. So did you sense the same enthusiasm for relations with Israel in the new administration? Oh, well, very definitely. Of course, it must be understood that although the election took place in September and a new government has just been installed, in fact, the foreign policy and defense policy and a lot of the internal security policies and some other issues in the governance of Morocco really are in the hands of His Majesty King Mohammed VI, not in the hands of the parliament and its prime minister. So although there is a new government and some policies will change, the fundamental issues of Morocco's relationship with Israel, Morocco's relationship with the Jewish people, the fact that the king 
in addition to his other responsibilities, is considered the, quote, commander of the faithful, which gives him oversight authority over all religious matters in that country. Um, all of these combine to assure that there is consistency in Morocco's foreign policy and its relationship with our community. Very interesting. You know, I remember when I first started working for AJC, you and I spoke about which countries have strong relations with Israel behind closed doors or formally, and Morocco was one of those that had good relations behind closed doors. Yet there were still some tensions. Israel had a travel alert in place for citizens going there. There were certainly no direct flights, but all that has changed now, right? It has changed. And of course, keep in mind that in the years of the mid to late 1990s, after the Oslo Accords, um, Israel had established diplomatic relations, low-level diplomatic relations with several Arab states, with Oman, with Qatar, with Tunisia, and with Morocco. There were actually Israeli diplomats posted in all of those places. This ended in October 2000 with the advent of the Second Intifada. So when we talk about the Abraham Accords normalization between Israel and Morocco, actually in Morocco, they talk about it as being a reestablishment of relations. They had relations in the late 1990s. And of course, contacts continued. AJC played a role in bridging some of these dialogues and continuing these conversations that took place over the course of many years. We would visit frequently. We would always be meeting with government officials in Morocco. And, and naturally, of course, we have an ongoing set of relationships in Israel. And we would gather sometimes Moroccan and Israelis together. We've done that on a couple of occasions, even in the years when no formal direct dialogue was taking place. So it's a reestablishment. It is stronger than ever. They're actually building to a much upgraded relationship uh, than what was the case in the late 1990s. There is now an Israeli ambassador in Rabat. There is a head of mission who will, I believe, shortly become fully an ambassador in Tel Aviv. There are some 20 individuals in the Moroccan mission in Tel Aviv across the street from the Hilton. And there is a small but growing diplomatic presence that Israel now has under Ambassador Govrin in Rabat. So it's a new day. It's much different from what it was in the 1990s. And it really is poised for enormous success. Keep in mind one thing. Until 60, 70, 80 years ago, there was a huge Jewish community in Morocco. There were hundreds of thousands in Morocco. And when we were in Morocco in the last week, again and again, it was said to us by government ministers and various partners and, of course, by the community, there are a million Israelis of Moroccan origin. And there's some dispute about that number, whether it's a half a million or 800,000. It's a huge number. And that itself provides a connecting point, a bridge between Morocco and Israel, a very natural relationship that will only expand as we move into the further stages of this normalized, full relationship on an economic level, a political level, a strategic level between Morocco and the state of Israel. I'm glad you mentioned that kind of Moroccan Jewish diaspora, because I am particularly interested in how both Morocco and Israel are working together to support the Jewish diaspora. I saw a story recently about the Moroccan Jewish community building the first synagogue of its kind in Mexico, certainly not the first synagogue in Mexico, but the first that really caters to the Moroccan Jewish community, a Moroccan Jewish congregation, and the efforts supported by both the Moroccan and Israeli ambassadors there. And as we know, when Israel was founded in 1948, 
many Jews were expelled from Arab countries or left on their own, either to go to Israel or join the diaspora elsewhere. In fact, I'm actually working on a piece about that, which I'm looking forward to sharing with listeners very soon. But I'm just curious, you know, we talk so much about Israel reaching out to diaspora Jewry. What work has Morocco already done to reach out to its Jewish diaspora? And are there lessons that Israel or others can learn from that? Morocco over the years has demonstrated again and again the importance with which it regards reaching out to the Jewish community uh, in its country and the Jewish diaspora. We have seen just, I think it was three years ago, a commitment by the government to introduce Holocaust education into the school curricula, Um, a decision um, to, I think maybe about a year ago now, to introduce um, really a whole chapter on Jewish heritage in Morocco into the school curriculum. We have seen the programs that have been put on in at least two foreign capitals by the leader of the Moroccan Jewish community, usually accompanied by a Moroccan minister, to talk about the extensive renovation program that King Mohammed VI authorized and subsidized of 167 Jewish cemeteries across Morocco. They're renovating synagogues, and they're telling the Jewish diaspora and Moroccan Jewry and the general public about their deep investment in preserving Jewish history and celebrating Jewish heritage and in making connections with Jewish communities wherever they are, whether it's the now fairly small community in Morocco itself or the hundreds of thousands of Moroccan Jews in the Moroccan Jewish diaspora. Really interesting. It makes me want to go there even more now, if that was even possible. So have you seen the movie Casablanca? Of course I've seen the movie Casablanca. I have to tell you, it doesn't bear a tremendous resemblance to the Morocco that I've known over the last 25 years, but it's a fabulous movie and very important messages and some great lines in it as well, of course. Yes, yes. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I do. I guess, look, there are a lot of great lines and we all say them all the time. But I guess my favorite is when Rick is at the airport with Captain Renault and he says, I think that memorable line is, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And I have thought again and again on my visits to Morocco that this isn't the beginning of a beautiful friendship, it's a continuation of a beautiful friendship between AJC and Morocco, between the Jewish people and Morocco. Have you ever been tempted to use that line in a conversation or have you used it? This is the first time. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to use it right here. (laughs) So you won't be tempted in any formal diplomatic (laughs) conversations. (laughs) Well, with that, Jason, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Manya. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, And hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.